If you turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3, we'll pick up in verse 23. And a study that I've entitled, From Prison to Peace. And Paul's in the midst of his treatise on grace versus the law. And now we come to this section that really kind of finishes it off for me personally. Because when I think about my own life, and I I remember back what it was like to think that I needed to earn God's favor... I realize that what Paul is getting at here is absolutely true. That what he says, what the Holy Spirit does through him, is absolute fact. Because what happens with us as humankind is we try and earn our own relationship with God. Most people, when you talk to them, if they don't yet know the Lord, they'll normally say that they believe they've been good enough to get to heaven. Or they will oftentimes even say, well, I'm so much better than everybody else that I'm going to get to go to heaven and they're not. We very often simply lower the standard and instead of realizing that what God said about his character and nature is still absolutely true, he is holy and we are supposed to be holy as he is holy. He is absolutely perfect. We're supposed to be absolutely perfect and so in order to meet that standard, we just lower the standard. And we'll usually say something, well, I'm better than that person. Or, you know, I don't sin like they do. Or so in a comparative sense, we will look at the rest of humankind and say, I must be good because they're bad. Or I I must be okay because those people are way worse than I am. So God's going to accept me based on what I do. And Paul now shows us the futility of that, and he uses the highest standard that mankind has ever known, and that's the law that was given to Moses. That law was perfect, it was absolutely useful, but it was useful really for exactly one thing, and we're going to see that today. And so would you join me? We'll pray, and we'll pick up in verse 23 and uh, finish up chapter 3 today. Father, thank you for your wonderful grace, your marvelous plan to save us, Lord, not by our own works, but by your shed blood on Calvary's cross, your broken body, you paying the price for our sin that has brought the grace that we need to be forgiven and the peace that we now have with God the Father procured by the Son, not by law-keeping, not by being good, but because, Jesus, you are perfect. And we receive that grace through you. And so, Lord, bless us as we study. Encourage your people, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 23, but before faith came. Now, when people read that, they kind of go into a little bit of a tizzy. Before faith, you mean, didn't, doesn't the Bible say that Abraham, by faith? But it says before faith came. So what faith is being referred to here is the important question. That is saving faith. Not just general faith to where you believe in the substance of things hoped for and yet not seen, but the actual faith that saves. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that is not of yourself, it is a gift of God. And so what's in view here is before saving faith came. When did that come? When Christ died on Calvary's cross, paid the price for my sin, 
that faith to believe on his name became a reality. And so faith, though in the world, is now personally available to me by believing in Christ Jesus in a sense that it saves me. I can have, and we say, saving faith. Before faith came, before I could believe on the only begotten Son of God and be saved, before I met the way and the truth and the life and became a child of God, before that time, notice what happened. We were kept under guard. We were locked up. We were imprisoned. We were incarcerated. How? By the law. The law imprisoned us. And we're speaking of the law of Moses in its totality. So the Ten Commandments, the 613 laws and commands that were given to the Jewish people, and the totality of it. The law itself actually hemmed in humankind. It placed us in a cell. And here's why it did that. We would look at that and we would go, there is no way in the world I've been perfect at that. And while some of you might be saying, well, I was good enough, no, remember that the standard is God's perfection, his holiness. It's not our imperfection. It's not us making standards that we ourselves can keep. And so the law guarded us. It kept us locked up. Kept for the faith, and again, saving faith, which would afterward be revealed. And so the Apostle Paul, being a Pharisee, being Jewish, being Hebrew, writes that the law had a purpose, but its purpose was not what we thought it was, because the law couldn't save. It simply imprisoned me in my own understanding, in my mind, that I had a problem. That when I looked at God, and I looked at the law, I'm going, man, what am I going to do? And so you begin at the Ten Commandments, you say, well, I kind of sort of do pretty good at not having any other gods before God, but I'm not perfect at that. You see, the problem is in the perfection. There has to be perfect application of the law in your life individually if it ever had a chance to save you. And so when you start going through the law bit by bit, piece by piece, part by part, you're going, guilty, 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 guilty. And you're saying, well, I haven't ever murdered anybody. Have you hated your brother in your heart? Because Jesus said, if you hate your brother in your heart, you have committed murder against him. Because you just haven't had the opportunity to actually kill him yet, but you're already on your way there, so you're in trouble. You get the picture? You see, if God's perfection is in view, then the moment you start talking about the standards, you go, oh my goodness, how am I going to do that? How am I not going to covet my neighbor's goods? How is it that I'm always, and please don't raise your hands. (laughs) In Jesus' name, keep them down. Nobody needs to know your sinfulness level. But, but if we were to go around the sanctuary and say, you know, have you ever you know, said something that wasn't perfectly true? The law pronounces you guilty. If you've ever looked at someone else's spouse and go, a lot better than the one I got. <laughs> and I'm, I'm being a little bit, you know, kidding and joking with you. 
But at the end of the day, those little moments where you've had a blow-up argument in your family, you're like, I cannot believe I ever married you. And then you wake up the thought, and you go, oh, well, I'm worse than that myself. You see, in the intervening time before you come to the understanding that you're wrong and your spouse was right, during that time, you were thinking all kinds of stuff that should not be in the mind of God. Remember, the standard is God's perfection. It's not what you should do. It's what he is and does. And so the law locked us up, tight as a drum. You had shackles on, the bars were closed, the walls were thick, and you couldn't get out of it. Kept for the faith, which would afterward be revealed. When Jesus said to Telestai, it's done. When he cried, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, the reason is the law. It killed us, it imprisoned us, it put us under bondage. Why? He was forsaken so that we would not be forsaken if we'll believe in him. That faith. And therefore, the law was our tutor. And let me give you another word that you should write in your margins there. The word tutor in 1611, when the King James English Bible came out, was a good word. People understood it very, very succinctly. Today we don't. Because today if you go to a tutor... You're probably going to go for a couple of hours. You're going to go to tutor time, and somebody's going to help you with math, right? That's the way we think of the word tutor. Or maybe you're not good with grammar, and you're going to go see somebody about English and those types of things. It's going to be a little bit of time. That is not what this word means in the Greek language. It's patiagogos, and what it simply is, is it's a person who is a guardian. They were hired by the family. The family paid this person's salary from the time that that person was, that child was able to begin its learning experience until they went through what the Romans called this, this toga virilis, which was the changing of the garments. This person who was the guardian actually stood in for the parents 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And if that child got out of line, they got whacked. If they did something wrong, they had to pay the price. In other words, it wasn't just a tutor for a couple of hours. It was the person who followed you around night and day and made sure you did exactly what you were supposed to be doing. But it makes a little more sense now, doesn't it? Not just somebody to teach you math. It's somebody to get you through life. So Paul says this tutor was the law to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. And so the tutor gets you to the other side of the problem, which is you need to be an adult. Amen? And in this sense, in Christ. When I was a child, I thought as a child, Paul said. But since I have grown up, I've come into that right relationship with God. But after faith has come, We're no longer under the tutor. Do you start to put it together now? So the law imprisoned us. It was also our tutor, full-time, 24 hours a day, made us recognize what we need to do and what we are not doing. And if we didn't do it, we got punished. If we did do it, we were rewarded. In other words, we were in prison. There's nowhere you can go. I mean, our kids... Anybody else in here, when I went to school, I went to school for eight to ten hours. Now it's six hours or four. 
or five. Or if you have, you know, some special class privileges, you know, it's like we're, we're making it less and less time that we spend in the classroom and now it's online and all these kind of things. Imagine for a moment that you're going to school 24 hours a day. You're learning round the clock. You're being watched 24 hours a day. That's what the law of God does to the human heart. God's perfection as exhibited in the law watches over your life 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and here's what happens to you. Guilty. Failure. F. Not making it. You're in trouble. That's what the law does. You see, you're going, well, you know, I haven't murdered anybody. Well, that's nice. Thank you for that. I, you know, I haven't committed adultery. Well, praise the Lord. But you've got to look at it from God's perspective. Jesus gets on the Pharisee's case and he says, look, we've we got a problem here. You have not tithed on your mint and your cumin. You didn't go into your spice cabinet. You haven't gotten the weightier things of the law, which is like mercy and justice. You haven't even been able to go into your spice cabinet and bring in the right amount of spice into the high priest so that you're okay with that offering. Now let me modernize it. If you have fruit trees in your yard, if you were Hebrew during that day, under the law, you were responsible to bring the first fruits into the temple. So all of you that have not gone to your tree, picked the very best first fruits and brought them into the church, you're all in sin. You get it? That's the law. The righteous commands of the law were so weighty that you're like, man, I skipped an orange. I biffed it. I, have, I, I had another thing. I went to Costco and got the twin pack of cinnamon and I didn't bring in part of that. You understand what I'm saying? You were hopelessly confined under standards that there is not a chance in the world you were ever going to be able to keep those things. It wasn't possible. It was never intended to be possible. It was intended to bring you to your knees so that when grace came, you go, yeah, give me grace. Give me grace. Because this law thing, forget it. You're not under the tutor if you're under grace. For you are all sons of God through, how? Faith in Christ Jesus. You're not sons of God because you keep the law through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized unto Christ have put on Christ. There's the reference to the toga virilis. They would understand that when you got away from the tutor, you put on the white robe of a full-fledged Roman citizen, very similar to a Jewish bar mitzvah. And so here's this young man. He's no longer under the tutor, under the patiagogo, but that person would now put on this robe. I am now a full-fledged Roman. Except in our case, we put on Christ. We've got a new robe. We've got a garment of praise. We're we're now clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We've gone from being clothed in the junk of the world to clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so here, here the picture gets more complete. For there's neither Jew nor Greek. He's talking to Greeks in a Roman world to people who want to be Jews. They had added the law back in. They've taken grace and tried to pervert it by adding the law to grace. And so here he is, he says, look, it's it's not about you being Jew or Greek. 
It's not about you being slave or free. In that particular world, uh, 40 or 50% of all people were enslaved to someone else. There, there was one way to make a living, and that was you had subsistence living. And so if you didn't do that, then you relied on somebody else. You may have sold yourself so that your family wouldn't starve. But there's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. In this particular world, women were property. He's saying, you've been set free. You can be a man, you can be a woman. You can be a Greek, you can be a Roman. You could be slave, you could be free. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What is Paul getting at here? What is the Holy Spirit speaking to us today? And as we begin to prepare our hearts to think about our time at the communion table, this is a perfect message because it draws our attention to exactly where we should be. You see, if I'm thinking correctly about my own life, I realize in me dwells no good thing. I realize that in me, there is still a sinner who needs a savior. I realize that for all of my law keeping and religiosity, I am not perfect in following the law. You know, somebody took issue with one of my driving analogies and I said, do you know that in the state of California, there is a law that mandates a minimum stopping distance? That means for every 10 miles an hour that you are driving, you're supposed to leave 50 feet in front of you so at 65 there should be six or 700 feet between us right what happens the moment you leave nine feet in front of you somebody in a prius tries to get in there and by way of example when you think about it now think about god's perfection and holiness you think he's got a few standards that are a little higher than that So when you start comparing yourself, well, I drive better than that. I always leave a safe stopping distance. If you do that here in L.A., you are going to stay home. (laughs) Safe stopping distance is your driveway, okay? But but for for the rest of us who are human beings, I get out there and that guy pulls into that spot. And I go, oh, Lord, give him a flat tire. (laughs) It's endangering my family. You know, and you make up your excuses as to why you think the way you think. But it's not okay with God because his Jeff that's my child in that car why are you thinking that I'm sorry Lord you know pretty soon you start to examine your own heart wow do I fall short of the glory of God amen all have sinned and fallen short so what happens is under the law every one of us is in prison and in pain amen that's what happens to me as I look at this, we were kept in custody. You and I, all of us. I was in prison. If you want that in, in a magnified way, read Romans chapter 1. And for sake of time, I'll abbreviate what it says there. But it says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Now remember what the word ungodliness actually means in English. Because if you look at it in the Greek, it means anything and everything that does not meet the holy, righteous standard of God. So every attitude, every action, every word, everything that you think is under the scrutiny of the king of heaven. Do you realize what that says? 
that the wrath of God, apart from the grace of Christ, is hanging over your head. It's like, here's the wrath of God being poured out against you for that driving analogy I just gave you. Because I shouldn't be thinking of God's other children in a way that I wouldn't think of myself. So every one of my little snippy bad attitudes, the words that I say that that are not appropriate for a child of God in the heat of a conversation as a married person, you're, you're talking to your spouse and all, you just, you lose it for two nanoseconds and there in your brain, you say something really not kind. Kindness is the fruit of the spirit. Unkindness is the wrath of God. You get it? You see, what happens is when you start to think of it that way, go, man, I'm in prison. I'm in trouble. I can't meet that standard. My my life is a wreck. And so what it does is all of a sudden the light bulb goes on. How do I fix this? How is it that I can be right with God? Well, praise the Lord. The answer is right in front of you. Praise the Lord, the answer is the cross of Christ. Praise the Lord that he was beaten for you so you will not be beaten yourself. Praise the Lord, he gives his life a ransom for anyone who will receive it. Jesus does for us what we can't do for ourselves. Because under the law, I look at the law and I pick and choose what I can keep. And I make that into my religion. This is how I'm going to relate to God. So I just lower the standards. I bring it down to the lower shelf to where I might be able to personally make it. Here's the problem. Your standards are probably lower than somebody else's and they're higher than somebody else's. So the people beneath you perish. The people above you are better than you, so you perish. Do you get it? But when you make it the righteous standard and then you make the righteous standard the way the standard's kept, which is what God did, God sent his only begotten son into the world. that The world through him would be saved. God says, I'm keeping the standard all the way in heaven, but I'm going to meet the standard for you by grace through faith. You see, the law couldn't do that. All the law could do is go guilty, 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 guilty. Every one of us becomes guilty under the law. Somehow, some way. So it convicts us. That's the, that's the struggle Paul has in Romans 7. You can read it for yourself. Paul saying, what am I going to do? The things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I do those things. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? He gives the answer, praise the Lord Jesus Christ does. It's the only way to meet the standard. Somebody's got to do it for us because we can't do it ourselves. So we are in prison. Our problem is, is the way we view guilt. We live in a world that when you use the word guilt, it is instantaneously viewed as a bad thing. It's like you made someone feel guilty about something. And while not all guilt is good, guilt in a godly sense is very good. I am supposed to feel bad that I am not meeting God's standard. And so in the sense that it's being spoken of loosely in this passage, here's the issue with it. The purpose of that pain is actually to protect us. Amen? Now, I I played an awful lot of sports in high school. Some of you can relate to this, or maybe college, and I played some semi-pro basketball. But the, the point of this is, when I was in high school, I severely rolled my ankle to where it was pretty much black and blue from the tips of my toes to about the middle of my calf in a game. 
And so the coach goes, we need you. We're, we're competing for a district championship. We're going to go to CIF. We're doing all this stuff. So what do they do? A couple of ace wraps, two rolls of tape. I could barely stuff my foot back into the shoe. Now, I'm going to tell you, I didn't feel much after the pain injection and the ice and everything else. But you know the problem? It was still really badly injured. So now my ankle talks to me every day and says, yeah, I was wrecked that day. (laughs) But the sting of the pain was taken away, so I further injured my ankle. And the same thing is true for sin. When you take the sting of of your sin out and you make it feel good, when you mask the pain, when you will not admit that there's anything wrong, when you refuse to see that you're guilty, then the pain that you should have, which is designed by God to stimulate you to understand you have a problem and you need to fix it, instead you're just going, I'm fine. I can still walk on it. I can still play on it. I can even jump a little. I have to jump off the other foot, but you know, right now it's no big deal. That is exactly what happens when you look at the law relative to Israel. They just simply changed the law. They wrapped it up in other little sub-commands, and they actually gave, in essence, a free pass to someone who would go in with the high priest and say, well, you know, I didn't really mean to do that. Now, it didn't take away the fact that they did, but up here they justified it. And here's what happens when you get rid of guilt. You just say, well, here's my reason I did that, so I'm no longer guilty. Sorry, but that's not the standard. The standard is God's perfection. You are still guilty. And the guilty verdict was designed to drive you to your knees to recognize your insufficiency of self so that you would cry out to the Savior. He'd go, help! I'm not able anymore. And instead of relinquishing ourselves to understand that the guilt has a purpose, we try and just say, well, you know, I'm no longer guilty. And I become spiritually prideful. I say, you know, I don't need your help, God. I'm good. You see, the law then becomes that guardian, becomes that guide that it's supposed to be. I'm going to have the communion team begin to pass out the elements of communion. And if you would be so kind as to hang on to both the bread and the cup, and we'll partake together uh, as we get to the end of the, the message. But you see, what was going on was the guardian was, was there. The patiagogos had come. He's saying, look, I, I'm going to make you feel a little bit of sting of pain here. I'm going to give you some guilt. I'm going to whack you, everyone. Anybody in here ever got to spanking from God? Oh, yeah. Can he do it good? Hallelujah, he can. The reason God does it is not because he wants to. He needs to. Sometimes our attitudes need to be corrected. Amen? And so you end up sitting right next to that person that you cut off on the freeway in bonds. (laughs) You know, you really stink as a driver. You're like, what? Yeah, I was the guy you cut off. It's like, whoops. And you're profusely apologizing. You see that guilt, and you go, oh, Lord, help me with that. You see, the law was that kind of tutor. The law was seized everything, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Guilty, 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 guilty. 
in trouble. You see, under that type of stringent confinement, I'm looking for an out, aren't you? You see, you want to get to that ceremony where the toga virilis, this bright white robe was put on a Roman citizen, a male. They, they would put that on and go, I'm grown up now. I'm no longer a child. I, I've gotten where I need to go. And here's the beauty of the analogy that Paul's using here. He's out from underneath the law. Doesn't have the pressure of being watched 24 hours a day. That's what grace does. Grace sets us free from the law because we do not need the tutor anymore. We don't need the guardian anymore. We do not need this person that in essence has been hired by God, if you want to look at it that way, loosely. God sends the Holy Spirit to convict you of sin and righteousness. The law is held up as a standard. The Holy Spirit says you're not meeting it. And so that person follows you around every day, whispering in your ear, you just blew it, Jeff. You're in trouble. But when the righteousness of Christ is placed on me, the demands of that law are met by Jesus at the cross. And instead of me concerning myself with how I'm going to get out of this predicament, Christ took me out of the predicament himself. He paid the price for my sin. And while I am still a sinner in need of a Savior, he said, Jeff, past, present, future, your sins are forgiven. The problem you have with the law is solved by my righteousness, not yours. And I'm going to give you my robe of righteousness. The righteousness that you wear as a Christian is not your righteousness. It's his. The reason you're right in the eyes of a holy God is because Christ is perfect. The beating he took on Calvary's cross was because you deserved it, and so did I. The transgressions for our peace were placed upon him. That's what the prophet Isaiah said. You see, Jesus went to the cross because the demands of the law still stand. There's a perfect God in heaven. He demands perfection, and we can't do it ourselves. So Jesus fulfills the law by going to the cross in our place, by dying for you. And in an even more beautiful sense, his blood is shed, thereby paying the price that was on your head and mine. You see, I had a price I couldn't pay. I had a debt I could not espunge. I was so much in trouble with God that for all of my trying, my entire life, I could never erase my own debt of sin. I couldn't be beat enough, I couldn't be imprisoned enough, and I couldn't shed enough of my own blood because my own blood is not perfect. It took the sinless lamb of God dying on Calvary's cross to pay the price for my sin because the law had imprisoned me. And when I looked at it correctly, I go, help. When I looked at it from the standpoint I'm supposed to see it, I'm going, God, if you don't do something about this, I am so in trouble. And in that sense, because of Christ... I now have freedom and I have peace. Because here's what happens when you're a lawbreaker. 
you wander around 24 hours a day, seven days a week, wondering when you're going to get arrested, right? That's what happens. You've robbed the bank. The cash is buried in your backyard. You are every day waiting for when the officers of the law are going to come and knock on your door and say, we finally found out where you live. And then what you're waiting for is you're going to stand before a judge and that judge is going to pronounce a sentence over your life after you've had a trial by jury, right? And this is very indicative in a simple way of exactly what you have going on in heaven. You have committed a crime. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Amen? Because you're a sinner, you have an issue. And the police of heaven have a warrant out for your arrest. And here's what happens. Jesus comes and takes full responsibility for your criminal actions. He says, you can beat me. Jeff did it, but I'm taking responsibility for it 100%. And oh, by the way, I'll actually pay the price for that sin. I will make full remuneration. I'll pay back every cent. I will erase the debt and then some. You see, the law pronounced you guilty. Jesus pronounces you free. Whom the Son sets free is free. Indeed, Indeed. amen. You're not kind of, sort of free. And now because of that freedom from your sin, you also now have peace with God and the cops are no longer looking for you. Right? Because nothing you can do is ever going to put you back on the guilty side. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed, which also implies forever. You see, this issue of the law is so important to us because it just reminds me, man, look what I've been saved from. I've been saved from my own sinfulness. I've been saved from the penalty of every sin I've ever committed or thought of committing. I've been saved from my own mind. I've been saved from the own pain, my own pain, the, the prison of my own pain. Anybody ever created a pain prison for yourself? Christ is sufficient to erase that pain prism. And because of prison, I now have peace with God because of that. I'm not waiting for the, for the hounds of heaven to come knocking on my door. Okay, it's time to pay up. Jesus paid the price for me. Jesus paid the price for me. So Jeff can't pay it. You you could have gone to the cross yourself. And I want you to listen to this carefully. You could have gone to the cross yourself. Your body could have been ripped to shreds. You could have had the same thing happen to you that Jesus had happened to him and you could have spilled every last drop of your blood and it still wouldn't have been enough. Because you weren't righteous in the first place. You never had the capacity to pay your own price. And so all the law could do 
is help us to understand exactly how much we need God's grace. And when we have that grace, we are now new people. That toga virilis was put on you. The righteousness of Christ was draped over you. The righteousness of the King of Heaven was given to you as a gift because you have believed on the only begotten Son of God. Not because you were religious. Not because you woke up one day and all of a sudden from that day forward you've never sinned. It isn't because of what you do. It's because of what Christ did for you. That's the beauty of communion that we celebrate. I am now, I am a son. You are sons and daughters of the Most High. You ever thought about that? Jesus didn't make you a stepchild. And I don't mean to diminish that particular role. But you're, you're an actual son. You're an actual daughter. You are literally in the lineage of Jesus in that sense. Because he made you righteous. Just as he is. Now you're not going to be God, but you are God's children. You're not a second class citizen of heaven. You were heirs. Check this out. You were joint heirs of the promise. You're not going to kind of sort of get a little bit of what heaven has to offer. You are a joint heir with Christ Jesus because of what he did on the cross. The redemption, that word simply means to buy back. Price paid. Your problem overcome completely in your past, your present, your future. The redemptive price that Christ paid on Calvary's cross was sufficient for every single deficiency that you have had in the past, you have today, or will have in the future. That's why when I say what we're celebrating is precious to us who love the Lord. When I go to the community, sometimes I'm at a loss for words as a pastor. And I mean that very sincerely. It's like, Lord, what do I say to even, to even bring some form of justice to what we're about to do? And I think of the words of the prophet. He was beaten and bruised. He was crushed. His chastisement for our peace, that was put on him. That's why one, de- one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father, because he did what the law could never do. The law pronounced us guilty, but the law could never save us. Jesus said, they are guilty, Let me save them. To all who believe upon the name of the Lord, they shall be saved. Amen? There's no partial salvation. There's no you're kind of sort of in and partially out. If you've named his name, you're saved. You're going to heaven. And so Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread. And we'll take it now. And when he broke it, he said, this is my body broken for you. 
as often as you eat of it, you do so in remembrance of me. Let's partake together. And the scripture says in like manner, in other words, in a same symbolism, he took the cup after supper, the third cup, the cup of redemption. And when he drank from it himself, he said, and this is where it ties into our passage, this is the cup of the new covenant. Because see, the old covenant was the law. The old covenant was condemnation. The old covenant was awareness of guilt, sin, the issues we have with God. This is the cup of the new covenant. His blood that was shed for us. Redeeming us from the curse of the law. Paying the price. You see, the new covenant's not like the old covenant. The new covenant just condemned us. Or the old covenant just condemned us, excuse me. But the new covenant actually sets us free. We have that freedom. And so Jesus said, as often as you drink of this cup, do so in remembrance of me. Let's remember Jesus. Father, we thank you that you knowing all things, knowing our hearts, our propensity towards sin. Lord, you first hemmed us in with the law, caused us to recognize exactly how sinful we really are. And then in the most wonderful way, you sent your only begotten son into the world. You, Jesus, came and died in our place so that we could be free. Lord, we thank you for your broken body and for your shed blood. And Lord, we do remember you. We remember it's not about us keeping the law. You kept the law perfectly. It's not about us paying our own price. You paid the price perfectly. It's not about us redeeming ourselves. You redeemed us perfectly. And so, Lord, we thank you for your body broken and your, your blood that was shed, for redeeming us back from the curse of the law and for giving us freedom that we now have because we have believed in the only begotten Son. Lord, we are white as wool. You've cleansed us and washed us. And one day, we're going to be able to step into heaven because of the price that you paid for us. And we honor you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray these things. Amen. Amen.